welcome to Season 6 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. During Season 6, you'll hear the likes of Pat Fitzgerald, Ron Rivera, Lisa Byington, Porter Moser, and many, many more. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our partnership with Sports Media Watch. You can find them and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of the world-famous Chicago hot dog and a landmark institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. This family-owned business can be found at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. This week, we feature ESPN baseball reporter, former top sports radio producer, and also a former co-host with yours truly, Jesse Rogers. Pedro really helped me along, never took the spotlight away. Like he understood I was the beat reporter and gave me room to grow. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, he has this heart attack and passes away. And I mean, I've never thought of it this way, but it, it kind of opened the door for me to do more TV, covering the lockout, which was such a huge storyline in baseball. That's something Pedro would have done. 30 plus years ago, Jesse Rogers walked onto the stage of a brand new all sports radio station in Chicago as a part-time player. But it didn't take him long to become a prominent and influential member of the station. Since then, he's become a national baseball writer and broadcaster for ESPN. His rise to national prominence didn't come without some bumps along the way, but Rogers has clearly established himself as one of the leading reporters in the field. And I can tell you this for a fact, he's a pretty sharp poker player too. So, Jesse Rogers, tell me a story I don't know. George, in radio, you're supposed to paint a picture. So let me do that for you. And it's about my career and having kids. And anybody in the business knows it's not easy to raise kids in the sports media business. Our hours aren't exactly the same as most. And I don't usually get caught up in the things that I'm doing. And I've been able to attend and, and do a lot in this business. That's very exciting from Super Bowls to Final Fours to uh, the Blackhawks parade after the first championship, one of my career highlights. But another career highlight was being the sideline reporter during the pandemic season of 2020 when the Cubs won the division and then hosted the Miami Marlins in the postseason. Nobody was allowed in Wrigley Field. The announcers of that game, Boone Chiambi and Chipper Jones, were in Bristol doing the game. And from Wrigley Field this afternoon, it's the Marlins and the Cubs in game one. Playoff baseball from the north side. I was asked to be the sideline reporter, the only person down in the stands. I couldn't get near the field because of the pandemic, but I was in the stands and this game was on ABC TV nationally. So here, here I am as a Cub fan growing up my whole life, now covering the team and now being asked to be the sideline reporter for a playoff game on ABC TV when no one else is allowed in the building. So there I am in the stands. I do a report in a, the third inning, I believe it was. And I get a text on my phone and we had been texting each other because the communication, obviously with people in different parts, the director in the truck, Boog and Chipper Jones in Bristol, we've been texting each other to, during commercials to, to stay on top of things. So I get a text and I figure it's from one of them. 
It's actually from my sweet, sweet, at the time, 14-year-old daughter, Carly. <laughs> Carly texts me, and I'm reading this verbatim. Dad, are you busy? I just printed something. <laughs> I just printed something in the basement. Can you go get it? <laughs> and text. My career moment on ABC TV. <laughs> and my daughter could care less. <laughs> You know, you just said it's a highlight of your career. It has to be one of the weirdest highlights of your career. It really was. Uh, I think anybody that was in the park, because there were other media up in the press box, would tell you the silence. The players would obviously say this as well. The silence in a playoff game. It's almost eerie. You could hear everyone yelling at umpires, yelling at the other team. In fact, the teams that year were told to tone it down a little bit because they could hear everything and umpires could hear everything. Um, so very, very strange. Something good happens for the Cubs, for example, and not many things did in that series. There's no cheering other than from the dugout. So definitely one of the stranger seasons to cover and to be a sideline reporter in the middle of that. I mean, that's a, that's a career highlight and memory. That's not something I'll forget anytime soon because it was so strange. It'll never happen again. Not only that, but your daughter texted you too. Oh, I'll read that text at her wedding, without a doubt. <laughs> and that's a reminder. What we do for a living is, is, is small compared to what we do at home, and that's being a parent. And I only wish I could have gone down to the printer and gotten her that and rushed it upstairs to her bedroom. But I was doing something that was, in that moment, a little bit more important. Can you quantify where you were 30 years ago and where you are now? You know, I think John Stewart once was asked, well, what's a career highlight for you in, in show business? And his answer was being in it. And that's, that's just going to be my answer uh, as I look back, just doing it. You know, people sometimes would ask, what do you want to do next? What do you want to do next? I just want to stay in sports media and get paid to go to a baseball game mm -hmm. instead of paying them for me to attend. So when I go back to 30 years, that idea sticks with me. Um, I was working every other weekend for WSCR Sports Radio, The Score, and attending some Monday night events we did, I was happy to get a free beer out of it and then draw salary producing sports talk radio. I'm still just as happy to go to a game and get paid for it. Whereas if I had a normal job, I'd be going to the game anyway. So that's how I view my whole career. I'd be doing these things anyway, and they've actually given me a salary so I could support my family and, and do all that stuff. So I, 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 I'm lucky like anybody in this business, seen Super Bowls and Final Fours and produced and hosted sports talk radio. I mean, that's better than any job I could imagine other than actually playing on the field because I did love sports like everyone else growing up. But this is really what you wanted to do, isn't it? That you wanted to be in the field. You wanted to be a reporter. I wouldn't say that was my lifetime goal. I think that's what I, I'm best at in this moment. I didn't know that, but I think the producing skills I did for about a decade are the same skills I'm using as a reporter. And he walked him, so one out, and a man at first, and let's send it downstairs and welcome in the third man of our team, Jesse Rogers. Hey guys, you talk about advantages. Well, the Rays have some playoff experience compared to Cleveland, of course, but Kevin Cash said that really doesn't show up in a short series, right? Maybe in a best of seven, that would kind of materialize. But right now, 
it's almost like single elimination. I think both managers are going to manage with that sense of urgency. And I think I was a very good producer. I think I'm a very good reporter. There are other parts of this business I don't think I'm very good at. I wouldn't be very good at play-by-play. My strength happens to be just, you know, talking to people and getting information from them, going to the locker room, talking to people, writing about it, reporting about it. That happens to be my, my strength. So, it, it, but, it, but it just kind of evolved. I didn't know that I, wanted to, that I was going to end up being a reporter in hockey and then in baseball. It just kind of evolved. But I just knew I wanted to stay and make a career out of the sports media business. Well, go back a little further to suburban Chicago where you grew up. Did you envision then what you are now? I just envisioned doing something in the business. Even you know, early in college, I focused on communications and journalism. But you never know. how. I mean, there was no sports radio back then. There was no internet back then. You don't know where life is going to take you when things don't even exist at that moment in time. I thought maybe, maybe I, I would do some writing, but that wasn't a strength back even in college. I did all those things. I did like PA announcing. I did radio play-by-play for the men's basketball team with Jim Molinari, the head coach at Northern Illinois. I mean, I grew up a sports fan. I grew up a Cub fan. I loved Harry Carey. I used to wait in line at the bleachers so I could sit next to him when he would broadcast from out there. I'd get out to the bleachers at 7 a.m. when it was like an $8 ticket and general admission. I sat next to him in right field, and it's true. He had a cooler with Budweiser's right next to him, and he was popping them and handing them out to fans. Hello again, everybody. Harry Carey back at Wrigley Field. We're out in the bleachers with the 10th inning show featuring the great manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, that artful Dodger himself, Tommy Lasorda. And I don't remember doing this, but my mom watched that day, and I was close enough that, you know, when they showed the crowd and he, he stood up or something, I said, hi, Mom, and she remembers me. <laughs> me doing that on TV that day. I was maybe 15 years old and 14 years old, something like that. Um, and it was just a memory. But now, fast forward, I'm able to cover the Cubs winning a World Series, George. I mean, come on. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. I played hockey. And I get to uh, cover the, the Blackhawks breaking their long drought in 2010, winning a championship. And now it's in the net. They score. It's they, in. They score. It's in. The Hawks win it's the in. Stanley Cup. The Hawks win the Stanley Cup. Leighton is down on his knees in the goal crease. It's in the back of the net. The Hawks have won the Stanley Cup. I mean, pinch me to, to be able to attend all these things. Part of life is being in the right place at the right time. I'm going to give you three of them. And you just mentioned one of them. And that was covering the Blackhawks. So the other two are Mike North and the passing of a renowned and beloved baseball journalist. Award-winning reporter Pedro Gomez died unexpectedly at his home earlier this afternoon. His career spanned more than 30 years, including the last 18 right here at ESPN. Pedro was so wonderful. And this happened on Super Bowl Sunday a couple years ago where he had a heart attack. And it was just so shocking. I got to know Pedro during the Cubs heyday, 15 and especially 16. When ESPN was covering the Cubs, I mean, daily almost. And so Pedro was in Chicago a lot. He was the TV side of things. I was the writing side of things. But of course, those jobs kind of morphed. And if you wrote, you were on TV. And if you were on TV, you did some writing. And Pedro really helped me get comfortable on TV. Done some TV over the years, but not like this. I mean, live on SportsCenter from the World Series, George. So Pedro really helped me along 
never took the spotlight away. Like he understood I was the beat reporter and gave me room to grow. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, he has this heart attack and passes away. And I mean, I've never thought of it this way, but it kind of opened the door for me to do more TV covering the lockout, which was such a huge storyline in baseball. That's something Pedro would have done. I spent 10 days in Jupiter, Florida, while the sides were meeting. That would have been Pedro's job. But I was down there writing, and I did, you know, I probably taped 30 reports for SportsCenter taped or live. I'm really out of words at this point. I I don't know what else to say about these surreal negotiations that are taking place just a few days before a league-imposed deadline. Yes, the union moved a little bit in the league's direction on service time today, on the draft, but it's small potatoes. Taped was two, three in the morning. At that point, it's it's sort of diminishing returns. If you're asking Jesse Rogers to uh, tape a sports center at 3 a.m. when he's usually uh, got his head on his pillow. So um, they had an all-night session. I was, I was taping those sports centers every half hour because there was new news to report. But Pedro was a huge influence on me late in my career, especially helping me out on TV. TV, especially TV reporting, is such a different animal because you have 30 seconds to say a lot. And when you're talking about a baseball lockout, George, all the layers to that, all the details that come with, with a labor negotiation, you better get it in. And, and it was it, you better get everything in. And it was Pedro who taught me how to do that. And I felt so much more comfortable after working with him back in 16, 15, 16, and 17. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasoning such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. We just mentioned baseball. Before that, with ESPN, you were covering hockey. And boy, were you in the right place at the right time. I certainly was. And that, that's an interesting story. Um, you know, I actually was the pre- and post-game ho- uh, host on radio for the Blackhawks back in the early 2000s. My first day on the year, full-time job was pre- and post. My first day was 9-11. That was my first day because it was oh the opening. Yeah, it was the opening of training camp at the United Center. I'm the pre and post game host just named. I'm going to the first day of training camp and I am ready to report the heck out of the Blackhawks who had no following other than, you know, the diehards. I mean, they were off the radar in Chicago in the 2000s, right? So I go to the United Center that day and they send me home. That's my first day. And of course, 
I was living in a high rise in Chicago and I'm, I'm just staring at the Sears Tower all day praying for myself and for everyone else that nothing happens in Chicago. So anyway, I'm doing pre and post for a bunch of years. And then I got away from that and did some other things. But when the Hawks got good, this is really strange, but it's true, George. And you remember this. When the Hawks got good, it had been over a decade or longer since anyone cared. And there really weren't that many people in the sports media business that knew the game of hockey. Hockey is a very you know, specialized sort of game. Yeah. Even to this day, fans don't know the rules. There weren't that many people in sports media. I know you knew the game. I knew the game because I played it and did the pre and post game. So ESPN is looking for a reporter. And I actually had called them ESPN 1000 and was suggesting to them a, a producer they should hire for their talk shows. He was a good young producer. And as I'm telling them about this, this guy, I think it was Steve Goffman, they say to me, well, what are you going to do right now? I'm like, I'm not sure. I'm between things. And they said, well, the Hawks are getting good. This is 2008, 2009. And we're expanding our base of reporters. We need a hockey reporter. How'd you like to do it? I'm like, yeah, you know what? I love hockey. I was just doing the pre and post game a couple years earlier. They seem to be getting good. I'll do it. I did not know at that moment it would entail full-time going to every road game, all the, like, I didn't really realize what they were asking. And I became the beat reporter for ESPN Chicago, covering the Chicago Blackhawks every day, home and road. And those three or four years I did it, George, leading up to the championship and afterwards, honestly, were the best times of my career because of the lifestyle. Summer's off, right? <laughs> um, it, it, the two and a half hour games, you know, they don't play every day. Practices are short. Just lifestyle-wise, it was the best time of my career. And then, of course, they win that championship. And the highlight of it all is being on the player's bus during the parade, sitting next to Dustin Bufflin, sitting next to Brian Campbell, ticker tape parade down Michigan Avenue, and I can't believe I'm there. It was just an amazing run. It really was a career highlight. It really was. Now let's go to Mike North, Pappy, who was one of the originals at the score, a high school dropout paired with an ex-Chicago Bear and Harvard-educated Jiggs, Dan Jiggets. And you were tabbed the producer of this show, which was called The Monsters of the Midday. So tell me a story I don't know about that experience? Well, honestly, I've never said this before, but I think I connected with Mike because I went to Northern Illinois University. I wasn't some Syracuse or Northwestern, you know, Mike Greenberg uh, guy that was, you know, came out of the womb articulate and ready to rock and roll. I was kind of closer to Mike North, as crazy as that sounds, um, who, like you said, dropped out of high school. And we just connected. And he was also the first talk show host that I'd been around that gave the producers of his show as much credit as he and his co-host were getting. I mean, I was behind the scenes, but he made it, he made me feel like it was my show as much as it was his. And I, that was, that's an incredible feeling, George. Think about that. 
Because instead of thinking I'm working for Mike and Dan, I'm part of Mike and Dan. And there's just a difference when you have ownership. And Mike made me feel like I'm just as important. When Mike gave me that ownership of the show, my confidence went through the roof that I belong here as much as anyone else. So I was a, I was a, I was a year out of college. And here I am producing the midday sort of experimental talk show on the first sports radio station in the history of Chicago. And it's experimental because they paired a, a, a former player with a guy that was running a hot dog stand. I could have blown up in so many different ways mm-hmm. and I could have been part of the reason it failed. So that's how it started. And that's where the connection began. I wanted to do well for them. And I think we did. And I mean, I could go through the trips we took and maybe I'll mention a couple quickly. Mike and I took a 14 hour train ride to Penn state to meet Joe Paterno. This is back before any, you know, scandals. We had a great time. I think my favorite story, and I don't think I've told many of these is, is just so random. Mike gets to do a show from the playboy mansion with Hugh Hefner. He's throwing a party. There's some charity involved in it, but it's a Hugh Hefner Playboy Mansion party. Somehow we're doing live four hours of radio and then we get to stick around. One of my memories of being there, besides all the beautiful scenery, of course, is you remember when the uh, Austin Powers movies were big with Mike Myers and Vern Troyer, the the Mini-Me character? Vern Troyer was Mini-Me. He had models all around him at this Hugh Hefner party. Eventually, we're in the grotto, the famous pool, and we're just taking this all in. We're having drinks. And next thing I know, I see Vern Troyer, mini-me, naked in the pool, bobbing up and down on a model's, like, like she's holding him. Like, her hands are out. He's just bobbing up and down in the water. (laughs) Vern Troyer. I'm like, what are we doing here? Eventually, Mike and I take a little walk on the grounds because why not? And we come to this cabin, just like almost 100 yards into like a wooded area. There's just this cabin. We go in there. It's this incredible looking game room. There's old school pinball machines, pool table. It's, it's carpeted from top to bottom, just all carpet. We're like, oh, my God, we start playing pool and stuff. There's a little door, side door. We go in there. It's a room with a bed and mirrors, just mirrors and bed. Like, what is Hugh Hefner doing in here? We can only imagine. And so we just were just blown away by that. So that's what my association with Mike North was all about, getting to do these things that were just amazing, Super Bowls included, all, all these other events that you know we could talk for two hours about. Well, Mike was very bold, but you're very bold at booking guests, or at least trying to. Take, for example, one particular incident involving the irascible Bobby Knight. Mike used to basically put a bounty on it. Uh, you know, if you get me Bobby Knight, I'll give you a bonus of a couple hundred bucks. Well, back then, a couple hundred bucks was a big deal. But I also wanted to do it because it was a challenge. So one snowy night, my old pal Judd Surratt was with me. Um, the, the Hoosiers are playing Northwestern, right, up in Evanston. We go to the game. And this isn't one of those, hey, you got to go up to the PR guy and see if you can get Bobby Knight on the next day. You have to go up to Bobby Knight. So after the game is over, really don't see the chance to approach him in the locker room. There's too much going on. So as they're leaving, I say, Judd, we got to wait. They're leaving. They're walking to the bus. 
snow is falling down. I follow Bobby Knight. His assistant coach like walks in front of him and there's the opening. And it's about 20 feet before he gets to the bus, maybe, maybe, maybe a little further, but I walk up to him and I start walking to him. Uh, he's walking with him. I say, Bobby, Jesse Rogers, WSCR. I host the midday show. You've probably heard of us, you know, sports radio in Chicago. The host of my show, Mike North is a huge fan. We're still walking. We're still walking. We'd love to get you on the show tomorrow or in the near future. I, I never get a chance to ask you. We're still walking, still walking. Now we're approaching the team bus. He hasn't said a word. I'm still giving my spiel. He starts to get on the bus and I'm still do, doing my thing. I start to get on the bus with him. He doesn't acknowledge me. He tells the bus driver, shut the door. He shuts the door as I'm trying to get on with him and boom, it hits me and I go flying. Like literally I go flying off the bus. And Bobby Knight never turned to me, never said a word to me. And my only saving grace is I got to tell that story on the air the next day, I think. And that was as entertaining as maybe Bobby coming on the air. And I Probably. never, I never booked Bobby Knight. One of the few guys Mike asked for that I never got on the air. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We resume with Jesse Rogers on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. There were some other notable guests, including one that was in a shower. Tell me a story I don't know about that one. Well, a colleague can attest to that as well. Our good friend Bruce Levine, the longtime baseball reporter, saw this happen. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies back in the day were a star-laden team, right? Darren Dalton, Lenny Dykstra, some other guys. And I was really good about going in and booking players you know, as I tried to do with Bobby Knight, but I would go into the locker room, Cubs locker room, visitors locker room. One day I booked Barry Bonds and Matt Williams at their peak back to back on the show. So I was feeling good about myself. The Phillies are in town and Lenny Dykstra, 
Mike North asked, asked me to get Lenny Dykstra. So I go into the visitor's locker room. It's, it's at the, uh, after the game, long after the game. Lenny was doing something. Maybe he's working. I don't know. But it's not many people left in there. But Bruce Levine, our colleague, is in there with me. And Lenny's getting dressed. And as we kind of know, Lenny's an oddball anyway. He's not getting dressed. Actually, he's getting undressed. And I start talking. I'm giving my spiel. And he starts walking into the shower. And I'm like, oh, shoot. I mean, now I got to wait for him. He goes, no, no, keep coming. Come in here. Tell me. What do you want? What do you want, kid? Come on in here. So I follow Lenny Dykstra into the shower at the, in the visitor's locker room at Wrigley Field. Now, I avoided the water, but he's standing there taking a shower. And I'm saying, what time can you come on tomorrow? Two o'clock, right. okay, 1.30? <laughs> and, he, and he came on. And Bruce couldn't believe it. And just to this day, him and I laugh about Lenny Dyke, booking Lenny Dykstra in the shower. You also had the, um, the joy and the challenge of trying to interview or get Michael Jordan on the air, which, by the way, was not easy. No, it wasn't. Um, it absolutely was not. I, I booked him twice. I don't remember the second time so much. But the first time, it, sometimes you have to be more lucky than good. I mean, normally I would go to the game, talk to the player, book him. But trying to talk to Michael Jordan alone and figure out a time the next day, I mean, it's just nearly impossible. He's, he, at games and practices, being pulled in, in so many directions. But I kept trying to find that moment. It didn't happen. But one day, I'm at a restaurant, Bub City. I, I'm probably having dinner before I go to that game, early dinner, 4.30, 5 o'clock. It was late afternoon. I, I could have sworn there was a game that night. I'm not positive. There's nobody. There's not many people there. I, I can't know why. I don't know why I was there that early. There's not that many people in the restaurant. But Michael Jordan and, and his then wife, Juanita, are having dinner at Bub City about five tables over. There's no, nobody in between us, right? It's just me. He knows who I am, but he doesn't know me well. And I'm like thinking, I'm shaking my head right now as I go back, thinking, boy, this, this could be a big mistake going up to him while he's having dinner with his wife. And again, it was, it was so you know, late in the afternoon. I'm like, I, I think there's a game tonight. He's having dinner. He's going to go to the game. I decide this is it now or never. I go up to him and I do the whole apology thing. I'm really sorry, Michael. You know, I'm Mike and Mike and Dan's producers. Oh yeah, Jesse, what, what's up? I'm having, you know, he was nice about it. I said, I, I never can get to you. Would you come on their show? They asked me every day to get you on. It's impossible to get you on. Would you come on? Your show? He said, I'll do it. He didn't come on the next day. He didn't come on three days later. It was about 10 days later. And every day, Mike and Dan are like, because I had told them, we got Michael, we got Michael. Every day, they're like, where's Michael? Where's Michael? <laughs> About 10 days later, via his guy, you remember uh, his guy was George. George, yes. Yeah, George. Still is his guy. Him. You should get him on the podcast. And um, <laughs> eventually, I'm like, George, Michael said he'd do it. I got to do it, or these guys are going to torch me. Michael came on. And then I think the other time we may have gotten him on when he was playing baseball for the White Sox, I think, because we did a show from out there, but I don't remember the second time. Finally, one more story. Please tell it about the time you and Mike were in a limousine and you were arrested. Boy, I'm surprised you didn't lead with that one, George. Um, <laughs> we had just interviewed Richard Dent for a TV show that Mike was, was hosting. And part of the deal for the TV shows, you get a limousine for the, for the guest and for us. We'd get in the limousine, then we'd go pick up the guest before the show. Now we can loosen things up. We, we probably had some drinks in the limousine. 
and get to know the guest a little bit more. Now we knew Richard Dent, but you know what I'm saying? Like get him ready for the show instead of just walking into a TV studio. We pick up Richard Dent, we do the show, and then eventually and we're having some drinks and drinks. We, we actually had some drinks with Richard Dent. We're definitely buzzed, but of course we have a limousine. We drop Richard Dent off somewhere in, in Chicago there. And now we're driving on North Avenue back to the highway. And back then, there's a part of North Avenue, it might still be, that was pretty seedy. Now, they've redone the bridge there, people know. It was pretty seedy back then. I think you yeah, know that, George. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're driving, and there's a stoplight that you don't want to stop at normally. But there is one. It's just a, it's that weird stoplight that, you know, there could be trouble around the corner if you got out of, if you got out of the limousine. Well, we didn't get out of the limousine, but some ladies of the night came near came up to the limousine because they they probably spelled some you know some high rollers in the in the limousine right well it's just me and mike we're not really high rollers right and i can't remember if they knocked on the window or yelling at us but i do remember we rolled down the window because we weren't exactly sure what was going on with tinted windows and everything and then we see it's i'll just say uh, prostitutes right and we did nothing but like just roll down the window and and i, I can't remember if they came up to the limo or whatever and cop cars just moments later came out of nowhere. I mean, they just came out of nowhere. My guess in hindsight is this was some sort of, you know, a trap. You know, you're, you're, they're waiting a sting. for you. Yeah, it was a sting there. They're just waiting for someone to roll down the window in a limousine and, and talk to some prostitutes. So everything was going to be fine. They took the women away and they're talking to Mike and I. And I think Mike would admit this now. We talked about it. We were both probably inebriated. Mike a little bit more so. And I'll include myself in the whole thing. There was a, you know who we are type of aspect to our response to the police officers asking what we're doing there. And so we kind of went a little too far with the cops. Mike, probably more than myself. I'm still a young pup. And anyway, next thing I know, we're in handcuffs and we're at the police station and we're in a cell all night long. Oh, man. And instead of like calling our attorney and going home and sleeping it off, we get out at 9 a.m. We go right to work. We go right to work at 10 a.m. And we do our show. And no sleep, still probably a little bit buzzed. It came out in the news like 10 days later or something like that. The charges were dropped. We never even had to go to court. It was just thrown away. But it, it's salacious enough. It came out. Came out and I remember the old talk show host, Danny Bonaducci. Remember him, the Partridge family? Sure. He had, he had a show at night. And this is when Mike is big time. So it was, it was nothing. It was newsworthy, but it was no big deal in terms of us being in trouble. But I'm driving home at night, listening to Danny Bonaducci, who had also gotten into his own trouble over the years. And I remember him saying, ah, no big deal. Mike, you'll be fine. This will pass. Your producer might be screwed. He could be fired, but you're, you're fine. You're fine. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> and I will say, when we had to go talk to our bosses, Mike took all the blame. And he's like, no, you, you, this is not on Jesse. This is not on Jesse. You're not firing anybody. And uh, Mike had the power to do that back then. And not that we deserved to be fired anyway. We did nothing wrong. Uh, again, never went to court, nothing. But it was quite the night. I never spent the night in jail until that point, and I never have since then. This is what Mike North said about you on this podcast back in January of 2022. He's the greatest sports producer, in my opinion, that ever lived, period. He got Bill Clinton on the air. He followed Jack Nicholson into the men's washroom. He yeah. deserves everything he gets, me and BB. Well, he's the best friend I've ever had in the business. And I've, I have some friends. 
but he's a guy. Uh, he's he him and me are go to our grave guys with stories. Well, high praise. He was probably the best sports talk show host in that moment in the country. I mean, in the same um, team photo as Chris Mad Dog Russo. I mean, kind of similar styles. Differences. Russo like came up had really good schooling and all that stuff. Mike dropped out of school. A little different, but same style. And Mike's interview style with with um, sports talk guests in Chicago was second to none. He didn't let anybody off the hook to the point where people wouldn't come on with us after a while and or I had to mend fences and we'd get him back on. And that was the beauty of Mike. We, we, we would do a tough interview. He would do a tough interview. And, you know, Frank Thomas would not like us for a while, but then he'd come full circle and do that and come back on. Steve Stone, great example. I remember calling Steve Stone at the beginning with Mike being sort of bombastic and stuff. And Steve Stone, you remember the line, George, I've told you this. Oh yeah. He picked up the phone. Your station makes me want to puke. <laughs> Eventually Steve would come on with Mike and be great radio. What I think Steve realized and many people realized is Mike was saying what a lot of people were thinking, but could never say whether that be Steve Stone, because he was part of a broadcast or just everyday people, fans that never had the outlet. Maybe I was a great producer, but I had great work, uh, were great people to work with. So it was about this time when you were doing the pre and post game for the Blackhawks, and I was hosting a Sunday baseball show. And a year later, I campaigned to have you as my co-host. And that was good because you accepted. We came up with the name. Actually, I came up with the name Hit and Run, <laughs> which is still running to this day some 17 years later. We tried to make that show different, Jesse. I think we did. 1120. In hour number three of the Hit and Run on Sports Radio 670, the score. George Hoffman in studio, downtown Chicago. Jesse Rogers live at U.S. Cellular Field. Say, Jesse. Hey. Did you find your Easter eggs yet? <laughs> Be going home to do that? No, I have to go to the United Center. Oh, Can't you're, go home. you're kidding. More Double duty Ratcliffe today. Double duty Ratcliffe. Two games left in the regular season. And, uh, well, you know, playing right. hockey. You've got I that. Was, I wish it was here, but it's not. Yeah, I think we did as well. Um, it's hard to make sports talk sound different, but we scripted a few segments. We did some different things. I remember an idea I had that we executed. Um, Casey at the bat, remember that one? I had yes. I had Paul Canerco, Jermaine Dye, and Jim Tomey at the height of the White Sox, you know, back in the mid-2000s. I had them record different segments of Casey at the bat. Like one guy would do one yes. paragraph and we aired that. Like we tried <laughs> to come up with, with some different things. I remember you and I would script out an editorial we would each read yes. at the end of every show. Instead of just going off the cuff and arguing or whatever, we would read something. It could be some, something we, we had not talked about at all during the show. It could be something brand new, whatever. And I thought we, we did a good job on that show. So it was fun. Yeah, hit and run. And it was, it was a great name, George. It was a great name to come up with. That's, that, that's what a baseball show should be called, hit and run. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. 
I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. Now let me tell you a story about Jesse and me you don't know. My wife threw me a surprise birthday party, a surprise 50th birthday party, which kind of seems like it was about 50 years ago. You were there, and as a gift, you gave me this wonderful bottle of French wine, which I declared we would share 10 years later. I put it in my wine refrigerator. 10 years later, that same bottle was worth $280, which was far more than you paid for it, but this wasn't about money. It was about sharing it with you. And that's exactly what we did 10 years later at a hamburger joint in the city. One of the best gifts I ever received and then shared with a gift giver. Thank you, Jesse. If I knew it would be worth 280, George, I would have kept it. I would have kept it and, and, and sold it 10 years later. No, we had some good times and that, and that hit and run show propelled me to some other stuff. So I, I thank you for co-hosting that with me. And, uh, you're only as old as you feel. And I think both of us feel young because we're in this business that keeps us young, right? Uh, uh, unfortunately, the players stay young and we keep getting older, but it's it's still fun to be around them. Yeah, yeah. Speak for yourself, Jesse. I'm still 15 <laughs> older, 15 years older than you are. As I said earlier, part of life is being in the right place at the right time. But in 2009, we wound up being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this would be the ill-fated Webio. We got... Um, together with 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 a gentleman, I don't even want to give him give out his name. I don't want to give him any credit. That wanted to open a new all sports internet only station. And there was a moment in time where you know internet radio in cars was going to be a big thing. Like you could access the internet in a car. And of course, that's where most people listen to the radio. Um, he was throwing around a lot of money, and in hindsight, we realized why. I was looking for a change. I think you were looking for a change. Yep. Um, and he opened up this new all sports internet station. A um, few months into it, if we want to do a long story short, George, I was the program director. You were one of the key reporters. A few months into it, our paycheck started to bounce. And as someone in management, I certainly was the guy everyone turned to. And I went to the owner and said, why are these paychecks bouncing? He made up a story that they switched banks. Long story short, he was running a Ponzi scheme separately to fund this all sports station. Like he actually was running the station legitimately, but funding it illegitimately. The FBI raided his offices, eventually came to our offices. He went on the lam, the whole thing blew up. He ends up in jail and we all end out of a job. Since you wouldn't mention his name, I will. David Hernandez was the perpetrator and he wound up with a 16 year jail sentence. Meanwhile, a lot of us found jobs back in the business, Jonathan Hood, Fred Hubner, uh, yours truly, and of course yourself, and that's when you began your career with ESPN, covering the Blackhawks, and then eventually switching over to the Cubs, and you wound up having some very interesting relationships with manager Joe Madden, but in particular, the guy who was running the joint, Theo Epstein. Tell me a story I don't know, Jesse. Covering Theo Epstein, very interesting. Uh, Probably the smartest. And even more than smart, the most articulate person 
I've ever been around in this in this business. With this ownership and with this fan support, I firmly believe that we can preserve all of those things I just mentioned that make the, makes, make the Cubs so special. And over time, build a consistent winner, a team that is playing baseball in October regularly. He could sell anything. He could be a great salesman, so articulate, and very particular about how you covered it. My job as a reporter to, is to put his words into context, right? Well, if there were times where he thought I wasn't putting him in the right context, I'd hear it from him, not just me, any reporter would. So he was on top of the things we were doing in the media. Some would say maybe he was a little overly sensitive, whatever, we could, we could debate that. But there's a couple stories that were very specific to, to me and Theo um, that one I laughed at and one I, 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 I laughed at them both, George, but one was scary in the moment. Now I'll, I'll tell that one first. I'll try to move quickly. This was in 15 when they are about to sign John Lester. This is, this is Theo and Jed's big moment, signing John Lester to, to this big deal, right? He was going to legitimize this rebuild. It was about two weeks before the winter meetings. They would sign John Lester during the winter meetings, but they've been negotiating with him since November. At that time, about two weeks before the meetings, a writer, I think it was John Heyman, a baseball reporter, had written that the Cubs had offered $140 million to John Lester. He eventually had signed for $155. He said $140. I had gotten a lockdown source to tell me that it was 150, 155. And instead of making that a headline, George, I actually buried that information in a story about Ryan Dempster returning to the Cubs, being hired by the Cubs as an ambassador. And one of his roles was going to be trying to woo free agents. Now he had played with John Lester in, in Boston. So as I'm writing this Don, uh, Ryan Dempster story about being an ambassador, I put in there, one of the things he'll do is try to woo John Lester to the Cubs, who, by the way, sources say, was offered more than $140 million. I don't even give a specific amount. I just say more than $140. That's all I write. It's not a headline. It's buried in a Ryan Dempster piece. Well, Major League Baseball trade rumors picks that up, picks that little portion up, and says Jesse Rogers reporting John Lester has been offered more than 140. Seems like an innocuous thing. Well, my phone starts blowing up. Theo starts calling me. John Lester's agent starts calling me. They both start texting me and they both have the same question. Where did you get that information? Well, I'm not revealing my source. Obviously, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I, I must be onto something. Why are they so upset about something as small as he's offered more than 140? I'll explain that in a moment. Theo is... I don't want to say threatening me, like, I, I don't want to say that, but look, part of my job is getting access to him, right? And I'm just, this is early on in, in my tenure covering the Cubs, and I'm a little worried that my relationship's going to go south, you know? He's intimating things. And look, it's part of the job. He wants to know where he got the information. I'm not going to give it to him. I will tell you, George, I have the text from both, both sides. Lester's agent, who I'm very close with now, Lester's agent. Both sides say to me in different ways, but very clear, if John Lester doesn't sign with the Cubs, this is in part your fault. I think Lester's agent actually said, it is my fault. I am kind of panicking. 
I'm doing my job the right way, but I certainly don't want to make myself part of any story. But hey, what am I supposed to do? I, I reported what I knew. Fast forward to the winter meetings. Fast forward to John Lester signing for $155 million, a little bit north of 140 which is what I wrote. Fast forward to an hour after he signs, two hours after he signs, Theo Epstein and, and Cubs Brass happen to be in the hotel bar where I'm in the hotel bar just after writing about John Lester. This is in San Diego, I believe. I see Theo. We both had a couple. And I, this is the first time I've, I've really seen him because I was dealing with Jed at the winter meetings a little bit. First time I've seen him since all this stuff that happened on the phone. And, I, and I'm glad that they got John Lester because I could say, what the hell was that all about? And what he tells me is this, George, that when I reported that, and I had never heard of this thing before, when I reported that, they were in what he called a quiet period between the team and the agent. And during that quiet period, there was to be no leaks, no information. And so what the agent thought was that while they're waiting for the Cubs to come back to them, Theo had leaked that information to me oh. just to force John Lester's hand. And I wrote it in the middle of that quiet period, even though they agreed, no leaks, no talking to media, nothing. But Lester's agent thought Theo leaked to getting nervous that John was going to sign somewhere else and almost pulled the plug on the deal. The funny part is I actually had sat on that information for like five days and, and then just finally found a place for it. So I probably got that information before the quiet period, but wrote about it during this quiet period. And that's why both sides were so mad, but I never revealed my source and they will not reveal it here either. Well, that takes care of my next question. Anyhow, Jess, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think there was a single one of us who didn't enjoy our repartee with Joe Madden. Uh, but you went one step further, one rather big step further by writing a book about him entitled Try Not to Suck. Why did you write it and how did it do? They approached me. Triumph Books approached me. They had uh, a co-author that covered him in Tampa Bay that could write his Tampa Bay years and his maybe even his early years. We both contributed to that part, but certainly his Tampa years. I mean, he took the Rays to the World Series. That's worth a book on its own. He... Um, was one of the first guys to employ the shift. That was interesting. But of course, he then wins a World Series with the Chicago Cubs, George. That's a book. That's a book. But it turned into a biography, not just on the World Series, but on his whole life. And so I became the co-author of that book, which was named Try Not to Suck, because that's what he famously said to Javi Baez when he got called up. And Baez, who was so talented, went into Madden's office and Madden really didn't have anything to say to him because he was expecting greatness out of him. And he just said, hey, go out there and try not to suck. So <laughs> we figured that's going to be the title to our book. 16 was kind of a continuation of 15. They win the World Series. They come close in 17. And that's where we write this book, Try Not to Suck. George, can I go back and tell the second Theo story very quickly? Why not? Very quickly. This is one of my favorite ones, too, and it's very quick. I wrote a retrospective of the, of the, of the ad, ad, trade for Addison Russell one year to the day that it happened. They got him from Oakland for Jason Hamill and Jeff Samarja. Time was such a great trade. He was a big-time prospect. So a year later, on July 4th, July 4th is important, 
this story posts. And I interviewed Theo for the story, going back to why, why, how'd you do it? How'd you pull it off? Billy Bean, Oakland, the whole thing. This is the only time in my career where there was a miscommunication on what was kind of for background and what was to be quoted. Theo was on tape. The whole thing was taped, of course. But Theo thought a lot of it was on background, they say, but I actually quoted him on a lot. It was just the only miscommunication. It posts on July 4th. And remember, I told you earlier, I was coaching, I coached my son in baseball. Well, July 4th is tournament time. And I had the day off from the Cub game because it's July 4th and they're playing in a tournament. Theo is kind of upset that we had a miscommunication. Now, as a reporter, your phone is always on, on you, on vibrate or ring. When I'm, co I'm coaching my son, I put it on vibrate. It's in my pocket. The phone rings, vibrates. I pull it out of my pocket. It says Theo Epstein, you know, my caller ID. I got to answer this. We're in the middle of the game. I'm coaching. Wait a minute. Did I forget to tell you? I'm coaching third base at the time the phone rings. I answer it at third base. Theo starts giving me an earful. One of our players gets a hit. I'm doing the merry-go-round thing at third base, sending runners home while my phone's in my other hand in my ear Theo's giving it to me I told you this you you printed that I told you that was background but two batters later I finally like figured out maybe I shouldn't be coaching third I should talk to him and focus <laughs> on Theo instead of my son's baseball team I my, my other coaches were I was gone for like 15 minutes so like what was that about and all I said was Theo they're like okay we get it I ask this final question to all my guests if not for sports broadcasting and journalism what would you have been I can answer that easily. An umpire. Huh? George, I know you, you, you always tell me about some things you did very well as a youngster. And I believe you. I was a really good umpire, like into high school, not just like 10 year olds, like into high school. I was a really good umpire. And I thought about it. I thought that's how much I love baseball. And I just thought I thought about it. But I do remember my parents or someone told me you're, you're not going to have a normal life if you go into that. You're not going to have a normal college experience, you know, because you, you go to umpire school. You're not going to have a normal life. I also remember thinking, boy, you, you got to spend like 20 years in the minors, too, or something like that. You know, if, if the, if the, if the um, norm was to go to umpire school and then go right to the majors, of course, many more people would do it. I probably would have done that. I would have done that. I, I so much liked umpiring and being on the field for baseball that I would have done that. The other thing, even now, I'd love to I wish my, I had three more sons to coach in baseball. You know, um, uh, I love coaching. It was fun. It was so much fun. So youth baseball coaching, I would do that on the side if I have time. This was fun, Jesse. You've been a longtime friend and colleague and a man who has proven his worth and then some. Maybe the next time we meet, we'll be at a poker table. Wait a second. I don't play Texas Hold'em very well. Thank you, Jesse Rogers, for telling me a story I don't know. Thank you for being a great mentor, George. I appreciate that. My thanks to ESPN Radio and ESPN TV, WSCR The Score, ABC TV, and WGN TV and Radio for those terrific highlights. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, and Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. 
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.